We are into our fifth deep dive of Mark. I missed this on the last one, but I do want to honour Dr. Rick Watts, Mark and Scholar, who's, who these thoughts truly reflect, rather than them being a result of my own extensive research. Cambridge Scholar, Regent Professor, humble servant of Jesus. Let's dive into Mark chapter 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. The setting is back in Nazareth and back in the synagogue. They are amazed at his teaching, as they were initially, because he teaches with authority unlike their own scribes. Unfortunately, amazement progresses into something else. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. This tells us that even though he may make a favourable first impression, even garner a bit of support, we aren't always going to be accepted. Proverbs says that familiarity breeds contempt. And though we might be shocked at this scripture, perhaps you've been in the same boat where someone has come back to town or back to church or back to Christmas dinner and they might be preaching or telling stories and the thought flashes into your mind, who do they think they are? I used to play Barbies in the creek with them or whatever that might have been for you. So we can't be too harsh on these onlookers and the flip side is when people treat us the way that they knew us to be a decade ago. Either way, for these guys, they feel like they know him and they aren't cool with this change that they see. And so they miss out. Verse four, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. This fits with the Old Testament prophets who were rejected by Israel, and also John the Baptist, the New Testament prophet, rejected by the Jews. In fact, they want him, Jesus, to honour them. They know him. Jesus shouldn't be able to do these things. So they miss out on the blessing of who he is and the blessing to them. Verse 5, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Jesus has been limited by them. Did their unbelief diminish his might and ability? No, that's the short answer. But God will not impose his will onto others. If we say God can't, God can't. He may say, okay, have it your way. We can live in the consequence of not believing, whether in his ability or his will. He'll let us live in that consequence. And the beautiful play on words here is they were amazed at his authority and now he is amazed at their lack of faith. I wonder what Jesus wanted to do in that place, in his hometown. You'd think it would be very near to his heart, but he couldn't do much at all. He was restricted by them. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. I love this. Jesus doesn't wallow. He doesn't take time to regroup. He's simply on with it. You reject me, no worries. I'll go on to the next place and see if it's different there. Imagine if we could learn from that, if we didn't need to take six months to grieve it, but we're just like, okay, dust off, let's get moving. Uh, um, he, he doesn't just do that, he takes it up a notch. Just like when John the Baptist gets in prison, Jesus starts preaching. When Jesus gets rejected, he sends his disciples on a missions trip. Verse seven, calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. So let's recall right back at the start in Mark chapter 3, verse 13 to 15, it says that he went up on a mountain 
and called those to him that he desired and they came to him and he appointed 12 so that they may be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. It's a little foreign to our Western sensibilities. I keep doing demon voices, but they're mainly influenced by Gollum from Lord of the Rings rather than any life experience with demons. Uh, and he sends them out two by two. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12. Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The sending out two by two makes sense. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let all things be established. Uh, Revelations there that has the authority given to two witnesses. Let me clear, let me be really clear. That passage in Revelations, I don't be, claim to begin to have the first understanding of what that chapter is about, but nevertheless, it's about two witnesses. <laughs> Verse 8. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Now, this is not Greek culture. This is Middle Eastern hospitality. There's no middle ground to be found here. <clears throat> you either receive the sojourners or you leave them without a place to sleep that night. Excuse me. <clears throat> You're forced into a decision of for or against. There's no middle ground. Verse 10, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. This shaking out is a sign of judgment. As in Nehemiah 5.13 and Acts 18.6, where even Paul shakes out his garments against the Jews and heads instead to the Gentiles. There are other Jewish writings to show that it is at the very least a break of fellowship, if not judgment, and, and they're not going to take that with them. They're leaving that filth, that rejection where it is. They're not going to let that stick on them, and we could learn from that. Verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Oil was always used for dedication and as mentioned elsewhere, often image makers, as in idol makers, would then anoint the wooden or stone idol. They'd anoint its ears, its eyes, its mouth, etc. as a sign that this God, little g God, was now inhabiting that image. The disciples used the oil to rededicate that image back to God pretty cool um back to the original whole flourishing design thank you jesus the disciples are replicating jesus ministry but for them to heal they're using a medium as a signal that they're not doing it it's jesus authority that's taking place and and we see in james where it still says um, call for the elders of the church if there's any sick among you let them anoint him with oil and he will recover uh, if the pray pray the prayer of faith also says that so as it goes back to the disciples, the rejection continues, but um, it's continued with Jesus in the synagogue, but it can't stop the message. The message is only growing. Now here, uh, Mark segues off into filling us in on what's happening with John the Baptist. It's his first mention since Mark chapter 1, verse 14, where John the Baptist is imprisoned. On a cursory glance, it looks like he's had a brainwave and thought, oh, I better update everybody. But if we consider that John is Malachi's Elijah, the messenger who is going to usher in the coming of the Lord, it's completely appropriate to be referring to John, the prophet, as we examine Jesus, a prophet without honor, and on the way to seeing that he's truly much more than a prophet. Not only that, but his rejection. John was rejected, and it said that if the prophet, you know, Malachi's Elijah, if he was rejected, then it wouldn't bode well for when the Lord came. So John chapter 6, verse 14. King Herod heard about this. 
um, for Jesus's name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he's Elijah. And still others claimed, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. So they're speculating that Jesus is a prophet. The question is, who is Jesus? Verse 16, but when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Now, King Herod, Herod is a vassal king for the Roman Empire, meaning he's kind of just there as a figurehead appeasing ruler for the locals to have one of their own. This John the Baptist speculation is an odd thing for Herod to be superstitious about, that he's all of a sudden got his head sewed back on and is back amongst them. But Mark goes on to explain to us why this seeming overreach of taking responsibility on Herod's part. Verse 17, for Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. You can understand that uh, John was kind of taking um, his life into his own hands, challenging a king about his marriage. Uh, and verse 19 says, So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. Yeah, pause. When was the last time we had a king, a vindictive wife who hated the prophet? That was Ahab, Jezebel and Elijah. Who is John the Baptist in Mark? He is Malachi's Elijah. Seriously, this stuff has to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. You couldn't tie all this together. You can't make this stuff up. This is incredible. Um, back to Herodias. But she was not able to, because she wanted to kill John, remember, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. So yes, fair call if you feel like this is Jerry Springer stuff, everyone's brothers and sisters getting married. And let's remember the context is this question, who is Jesus? Is he a prophet or something more? And Herod liked John. He saw that something rang true, but he couldn't quite make a decision. Verse 21, finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. This is stark contrast to Jesus' feast, where he eats with the outcasts, the rejected and the judged. This is a banquet for the elites. Verse 22, when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. This crazy show-off kind of oath in front of his guests is totally over the top for a young girl who's just danced for the assembly. I'm guessing there's some alcohol at play. Uh, verse 24, she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried into the king with a request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring back John's head. The men went, beheaded John in the prison and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. King Herod is trapped in his own foolishness and that is the end of John the Baptist. The messenger has come and the messenger has been killed. He prepared the way. But if they treat the preparer like this, how will they treat the one for whom the way is being prepared? 
the way John is treated is vitally important because this is the forerunner of how Jesus will be treated. This question of is Jesus a prophet is about to be answered in no uncertain terms, but whether or not people will be able to recognize the answer is a different question. Let's continue on to verse 30. So we're out of the segue. We've had the report of John the Baptist. We're back. The apostles, verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Where have they been? What have they been doing? Remember, he sent them out and gave them authority to heal, cast out demons, teach, etc. Uh, Verse 31, then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. I love this beautiful pastoral moment from Jesus here. He loves his disciples. He sees they need rest and he wants to give it to them. Verse 32, so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. At the time of this recording, we're all coming out of a time of enforced social distancing and isolation as a result of COVID-19. And for some, it's been a gift and for others, a curse. Isolation is enforced, but solitude is a choice and it's a choice we should make regularly. Jesus did. Jesus wanted it for his disciples and we should too. Verse 33, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Now, our time of solitude shouldn't become sanctimonious religion. It should be able to be interrupted. This is where it gets hard, particularly if we're Christians who want to do the right thing, who want to love God and love people as God wants us to. We really need to seek God about where to put our boundaries to protect our times of solitude without making them a law or inflexible to the point of obstinance. Jesus had compassion on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. This, again, is Exodus language where Moses is instating officers so that the people of Israel may have shepherds over them to care and to guide for them. Jesus' compassion here suggests that the office has not been filled well at this time and the people have no shepherds. This was a Davidic promise in 2 Samuel 5.2. The Lord has instated David as a shepherd over the people. And then in the prophets in Ezekiel 34.23 and 37.24, the prophet says that the servant David will be set as a shepherd over the people and that the shepherd will feed them. Jeremiah prophesies about a coming time when Israel will have shepherds to guide them again. And in Isaiah 40, of course, Isaiah, Isaiah 40, 11, 49, 9, obviously Psalm 23, but also Psalm 28, 9, 95, 7, 81. It is Yahweh. It is the Lord himself who is the shepherd. Just a few of these scriptures, because they're so beautiful, we won't read them all. He will tend his flock, oh, come on, like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those with young my heart (laughs) this is good stuff i feel like that was a little bit colloquial to be referring to the scriptures as good stuff but but you know what i mean but he is our god and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand if you remember it sing it with me for he he is our god we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his songs were daggy i've got to face it okay verse 35 sorry for whoever wrote that verse 35 by this time it was already late in the day so his disciples came to him this is a remote place they said and it is already very late send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat but he answered you give them something to eat 
They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed to them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. Our shepherd, remember, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He leads me beside the still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Jesus directed all the people to sit down on the green grass. Ezekiel 34, 14 says, I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel, which is where they are in that solitary place, shall be their grazing land. The shepherdless now have a shepherd. It's beautiful. Verse 40. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. The disciples were his agents in this moment. They are simply doing as he instructed. They cannot do this in their own ability. That is perhaps why we don't see this happen constantly today. We don't tend to go out to Sydney Stadium when the cricket's on and and then just start get our lunch out and then start passing it out and it just keeps going and going. Although the people on the hill would no doubt very much appreciate that. I, I don't know. I can't, I can't recall a, a, a time when it's happened since Jesus. Um, you might know differently. It says, He also divided the two fish among them all. Verse 42, They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. So you assume women, you assume children. It's a lot of people. They all ate and were satisfied. I love this. I love this. I love what it speak of, speaks of, what it, what it says, Jesus the satisfier. They all ate and were satisfied. He's leading us as the shepherd, leaving us in want of nothing. And then factor in some Isaiah language, Isaiah 51, 14, neither shall his bread be lacking. Isaiah 49, 9 and 10, they shall feed along the ways on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Isaiah 54, 7, with great compassion, I will gather you. Remember, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and the context of all this coming back to that resounding question who is Jesus this miracle answers King Herod he's clearly more than a prophet he fits the Davidic Messiah but he's also doing things that only God can do he's providing bread in a barren place and providing more than just enough for the day 12 baskets over symbolic of the nation of Israel there is enough for all also of note, in many Jewish texts leading up to this time, is the expectation that when deliverance eventually comes, there's going to be another wilderness provision. <laughs> That's interesting. Now, what's missing in this mighty deed? There's no amazement. How can this be? But there just doesn't seem to be any reaction, and we'll hear about this soon. So verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he, while he dismissed the crowd. After he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And there's that solitude. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. So the context is Jesus in prayer. Only three times in the book of Mark does it say that Jesus was in prayer, and they're related to times when he was revealing who he was and why he was there. So chapter 1, verse 38 this is why I've come and in the garden he's about to reveal the moment of his greatest glory and here so here is significant verse 48 and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them and about the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea 
let's just reminisce to Exodus chapter 14, verse 24. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down, that's Yahweh, the Lord, capital letters, and threw the Egyptian army into confusion. So across the sea, he threw them into confusion. Psalm 46, verse 5, God will help her when morning dawns. Isaiah chapter 17, verse 14, at evening time, terror, before morning, they are no more. So there's this action at this particular time all through Israel's scriptures, speaking of the deliverance of Yahweh, an all fourth watch of the night kind of language. He meant to pass by them. And this pass by makes us remember Yahweh on the mountain with Moses, needing to shield his face because he was about to pass him by. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11, with Elijah revealing his glory. Verse 49, but when he saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. This is actually I am language. The words that Yahweh used to Moses at the burning bush. The language of Isaiah 41.4, who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first and with the last, I am he. Also, Isaiah 43, 10, 11, I am, I am, verse 25, I am, Isaiah 48, 12, I am. And then it says, I am, it is I, do not be afraid. We find do not fear right through Isaiah and Israel's scriptures coming from the Lord. Verse 51, and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. His very presence has stilled the storm. He hasn't even needed to command it. And they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, weird connection, but their hearts were hardened. Now we're at an interesting place right now. Previously hardened hearts was only used of Jesus' opponents, but now it's about the disciples. They aren't understanding his words and deeds. The loaves haven't had the effect that they were meant to, which was to show who Jesus truly was. And as Jewish lads, it should have been easier to connect the dots. And if they understood that, Understanding of this mighty deed should have automatically followed. But he hasn't. It hasn't. And we'll continue. We'll see it continue now. So into the summary statement of this little section, verse 53, when they'd crossed over, they came to land at Genesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Isaiah 65 speaks of the son of righteousness coming with healing in his wings. Jesus is certainly healing wherever he is. He is willing and he is able. And that brings us to the end of chapter 6. Stay tuned for chapter 7 to drop.